Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Sports Travel Podcast, where we interview leaders in the sports event industry. This is Jason Gewertz, Vice President of the Sports Division for North Star Meetings Group and the Executive Editor and Publisher of Sports Travel. And our guest on this episode is none other than Tim Schneider, the founder of Sports Travel Magazine. This year marks the 25th anniversary of the first issue of Sports Travel Magazine, and we have Tim on to discuss the origins of the magazine, how the publication has grown over that time, but also how the sports event industry has grown over that time as well. We'll be telling some good stories and recapping how the concept of the magazine came about at a time when no such publication existed. But before we begin, this episode of the Sports Travel Podcast is being sponsored by the Myrtle Beach Convention Center, a proven desirable vacation destination only blocks from the beach. Planners should consider sunny Myrtle Beach, South Carolina and the sizable Myrtle Beach Convention Center for your next events. Having handled an array of events from competition sporting events to food service products trade shows, as well as golf equipment to consumer shows and gaming conventions, the Myrtle Beach Convention Center has developed an impressive resume. The center offers 100,800 square feet of column-free exhibit space, a 17,000 square foot ballroom with 17 breakout meeting rooms, all attached to the 402-room Sheridan Myrtle Beach Hotel. When booking your event at the Myrtle Beach Convention Center, guests can also take comfort in knowing that the center is star accredited with the Global Biorisk Advisory Council. Schedule your exclusive tour today. After all, they host great meetings. For more information, visit MyrtleBeachConventionCenter.com. And now, on to the conversation. If you went back to 1997, you would find a sports event industry that was truly in its infancy. The National Association of Sports Commissions, now known as Sports ETA, was only a few years old itself at the time. It was a few years prior to that when Tim Schneider started to identify something interesting in the other magazine that he published called Association News. Why were so many sports organizations reading a magazine about association management, he wondered. The answer was that they were on the hunt for destinations and venues to host their events, and no other publication seemed to have information about those available locations and venues that they could find. Like the true entrepreneur he is, Tim decided to come up with a product to fix that. While it took a few years to materialize, that innovative thinking eventually led to issue one of Sports Travel, published 25 years ago in January 1997. In the years since, the magazine has grown with new departments and features and has successfully made the leap to the digital world as well. The industry it covers, of course, has also experienced incredible growth and evolution, whereas a handful of destinations at the time dedicated themselves to sports marketing and offering their available venues for sports events. Hundreds of destinations do that today, and they do it well. And the number of events and event organizers has only grown as well. Tim guided the growth of the magazine, and you can make the case that he helped guide the growth of the industry itself, leading to his being inducted into the very first class of the Sports ETA Hall of Fame in 2017. Tim recently stepped away from the magazine and from North Star Travel Group, with which he merged the magazine five years ago. For myself, I couldn't have been more impressed with sports travel when I first came across it in 2008 to join as managing editor. Tim's imprint was, of course, all over the publication, but in many ways, it will be forever. Uh, His legacy, of course, lives on in our pages, and it was a delight to sit down recently with Tim to talk about how sports travel all began, how it has evolved, and what destinations and sports organizations should be focusing on as they chart the next 25 years of the industry. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did recording it. Tim Schneider, welcome back to the Sports Travel Podcast. 
Jason Gewertz, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. This is a very special episode. They're all special episodes, but this one is particularly special, Tim, because we are going to talk about a rather important anniversary in the history of Sports Travel Magazine, and that is that 25 years ago this year, the very first issue of Sports Travel was published. And I thought it would be interesting to take a little stroll back to that time and reflect a bit about what those early days were like for the magazine and how everything has evolved for a publication that certainly changed your life and certainly has changed mine since I have been uh, involved with it as well. So it is always a treat to catch up with you and especially on this particular topic for a magazine that you and I both hold very dear. And I would like to believe that the sports event industry does as well. So We'll take a little time uh, telling some stories and thinking back to how all this began and maybe also put some context into what it all means today, since this industry has certainly evolved as most industries have. But I would argue that things look different today than they did 25 years ago when issue one was rolling off the presses. So, Tim, I thought we would start. This is a story that that some people know, but not everybody knows. I think we should go back to the kind of the origin story here of when this idea for a publication first planted itself into your brain and how things got started there. And then and then we'll see where it goes. Well, it's hard to believe that it's been 25 years since we launched Sports Travel Magazine, but the idea for Sports Travel actually dates back further. Than that. I believe it was in 1992, I had successfully acquired a magazine called Association News and noticed that readers of Association News included several sports organizations, particularly the Olympic governing bodies headquartered in Colorado Springs. And they were responding to advertising that they had seen in Association News. And it didn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. Because association management, of course, is a topic that I had come to understand and and appreciate, but I didn't immediately understand the tie between sports organizations and association management. So I picked up the phone and called a few of those sports organizations who had indicated an interest in some of the advertisers uh, in association news and asked them why they had responded to the advertising. And the answer was they were looking for places to stage their tournaments, their championships, their sporting events. And so that was probably the light bulb moment. And that occurred roughly 30 years ago. At the time, I did research and discovered that there were only a handful of cities around the country that had either a sports commission or someone at their convention bureau dedicated to the sports market. I spoke with a lot of people in the sports industry generally, and the feedback was, you know what, there's not enough there there. Stadium and venue construction is where all the money is. So why don't you do a magazine about stadium construction? And that didn't really interest me. So I took the idea for Sports Travel Magazine and put it on the shelf and didn't do anything with it in 1992. But I continued to watch the space. And what I saw between 1992 and 1997 was that more and more cities were forming sports commissions or dedicating someone in their convention bureau staff to the sports market. And so 
uh, about five years after that, four or five years after that, I took another close look. And whereas in 92, there were a handful of cities with sports commissions, by 96, there were you know several dozen. And I also discovered that in 1996, an organization called the National Association of Sports Commissions would be holding their annual meeting in Los Angeles, which is where I'm based. And so it was very convenient for me to go to that organization's meeting and talk to these cities who had formed sports commissions. We did our first focus group at that 1996 annual meeting. And that's kind of a funny story because Denny Gann, who's now in the NASC or Sports ETA Hall of Fame, was the president of the NASC that year. And he announced that we would be doing a focus group. And Don Schumacher, who ran the organization at that time, let everyone know that we would buy lunch for anyone who was willing Uh to participate in the focus group. And we ended up having about three dozen people in the focus group. (laughs) How many had Uh, you planned to buy lunch for? I uh, Not that many. And that (laughs) began the history of our deep investments into the sports (laughs) event industry. But uh, we had the good sense to print up a survey form. And it was actually at that uh, that luncheon, uh, we were still going back and forth on what would we call this magazine and the clear consensus was that it should be called Sports Travel Magazine because that perfectly encapsulated the two worlds that we were trying to serve with this concept. And It so, rolls off the tongue a little easier than Stadium Construction Magazine. <laughs> it certainly does. And it was something that I knew I could devote a lot of time and energy to developing because they were two areas that I was passionately interested in. And so that was really the beginning for sports travel. We ended up ultimately launching it in January of 1997. And I can't believe, as I say, I can't believe 25 years have elapsed since then. Aside from workshopping the name of the publication at that meeting, what kind of reaction did you receive from that group at the time when you floated even the concept of you know, a, a publication that would cover this industry such as it was at the time? Yeah, I kind of got ahead of myself in telling the story there, but the the truth is there was so much enthusiasm in the room for something that would help the industry understand the importance of professionally organizing and marketing sporting events that I knew we were onto something almost immediately. And so, you know, the naming of it uh, it was obviously very important but using that forum to set the direction, uh, you know, uh, other questions on that survey included what sorts of information should we offer in Sports Travel Magazine? What should that mix be? And the feedback there from, from the sports commissions was that it needed to be a mix of information that would be useful to sports event rights holders and sports event organizers. But that would also help them publicize what was unique about their destinations that wanted to host sporting events. And so that initial inclination on our part to have that sort of mix was confirmed by uh, the Sports Commission representatives. And uh, when we took that concept to event rights holders, they were equally enthusiastic about it, just as those early NGBs who were responding to advertising and association news had indicated, 
event organizers generally wanted to work with cities and destinations that were interested in working with them. So it's a pretty straightforward concept. And I think that that's what has caused it to endure for so many years. It's not that complicated. I, I was always fond of telling people, you know, it's pretty straightforward. You have to let people know what you have in your community, what makes you unique, what are the venues that you already have in your inventory that can make the job of the sports event organizer easier. And so it's a very, a very basic formula uh, that I think has, uh, you know, contributed to its success over the years. I'm familiar with certainly some of this backstory or quite a bit of it, but I, I'll ask you a few questions that I don't even know the answers to from those early days. So you had this concept, you had great feedback uh, from the industry itself, but then you actually had to go and create a magazine. You mentioned that you had Association News as another publication that you were already publishing. What was that process like to kind of piece together uh, an actual version of sports travel? Um, what was the staffing like? How did you, how did you even put that together? Well, the staff was lean at the beginning, uh, but the, it, one of the first things we did was to lay out an editorial calendar uh, for the first year of the publication. And the mission there was to take all of North America and divide it into destination feature stories such that every region of the country would be covered during the annual cycle of editorial in the magazine. And then augmenting that, of course, was the departmental editorial. And both of those things allowed us to go out into the marketplace, to have a reason to call on every destination in the country at least once a year, but to also provide a a sort of package of information that would be truly useful to people responsible for planning or marketing sporting events. So, Tim, when you had those first issues of the magazine and you were putting the editorial calendars together, were you thinking in the back of your mind that this would be a magazine only for professional sports or the highest profile sports? Or was it evident then that even youth sports were going to be part of this conversation the magazine would have? From the outset, our vision was pitch the biggest tent possible. And by that, I mean having a resource, uh, an informational resource that would be valuable at all levels of sport, including the amateur level, the Olympic level, the collegiate level, uh, and of course, the professional level. That was important because we always saw part of our mission as defining the industry in the largest terms possible, not you know, honing in on one little vertical part of the market, but talking the sports industry generally and the sports event industry across all uh, levels. And so that was an important part of the vision from the outset. And I think that's been valuable because in the context of both the magazine and the live events that have grown from the magazine, we like the idea that large cities can learn from small cities, small cities can learn from large cities. Event organizers at the amateur level can learn from event organizers at the collegiate or professional level. So we don't see there being a great value in slicing and dicing the sports event world into these smaller component parts when it comes to education and professional development. 
I'd like to go back to that very first issue, Tim. Uh, we had the privilege of working together side by side for nearly 15 years of, on this journey of the magazine, but obviously you started uh, certainly before I came around. Um, I got to know you as uh, someone who cared very deeply about every aspect of every issue that was printed of sports travel, and for good reason. Uh, I'm curious what that first issue was like as you were trying to figure out um, both the the content of the stories, but also the look of it. Uh, were you Were you happy with issue one? Do you remember uh, anything particular about that very first effort? Well, before there was issue one, there was a prototype issue, which uh, of course did not have paid advertising, but it gave the flavor of what we were hoping to achieve with the actual product. And, you know, I remember being struck by the fact that in the sports world, you have such great and compelling imagery that can help not only communicate sort of the emotion and the impact of sports, but also provide a stage for destinations through showing their venues, through showing the celebrations that occur in a city where a sporting event at whatever level is staged. And so it was a great combination to work with and one that reflected our desire to mix departmental editorial, as we call it, with feature stories, so that you have this ever-evolving package of information that is also attractive to look at. And we were, I think, fortunate to achieve that. You know, when you're working on your first issue of a magazine, you sometimes have a year or two to be thinking about articles, the mix, the imagery. And so we had that advantage because we were working on it for for a long while. And I do think that what we produced from the first issue was representative of what the vision for Sports Travel Magazine had become and really what the magazine has become over the ensuing years. So I'm difficult to please. I don't know if you noticed that in the 15 years of working with me, Uh, but in those 10 years before you joined us, I was probably even more difficult to please uh, because I didn't have your talents that could be deployed against the uh, objectives at hand. Uh, Needless to say, uh, I didn't want to put my name on anything that would not be first rate and completely professional. And I think that also ended up attracting both a lot of readers and a lot of advertising support, because you can tell if something is not first rate when you pick it up and you look at it. And the reaction that we got from the people who saw the first issue was, gosh, you're onto something here. This is a good idea. And how do we get involved? And those are all the sorts of reactions you're looking for uh, when you launch uh, a new brand, a new media brand. Right. I was curious what the industry reaction was in those early issues, if you could feel some momentum building, both from the uh, interest that you were getting from advertisers or the interest you were getting in people just wanting coverage of something that they felt was worthy. Well, as I said, the reaction was positive. But we had one small problem, and that was that people did not have marketing budgets earmarked for the sports event industry. And so that then becomes a situation where you have to do a lot of education. You have to do a lot of convincing to get an organization to start allocating hard dollars 
against the market they haven't sold to in the past. And so that was probably the largest obstacle that we faced in the early going. It's making that case, especially when all that you have is largely anecdotal information and, and not really good objective data about the size of the market, the value of the market, the return on investment that people can expect. All of that took time. It takes a long time to develop that kind of data. And it takes a long time for you to be able to say to a destination, whatever percentage of your business emanates from the sports industry, that same percentage of your marketing budget should be devoted to the sports industry. Uh, that was a message that took time to uh, sort of achieve its its own traction. But I think over time, we, we certainly uh, uh, had some converts to that notion based on the number of cities with sports marketing efforts, with people dedicated to the sports market, either at their convention bureau or through a dedicated sports commission. That probably has been one of the most gratifying aspects of launching Sports Travel Magazine, because I think we did contribute to moving the needle there in terms of just a basic understanding of, oh, the sports market is something with value. And from that, you've seen values across the sports industry, whether it's ownership of professional teams, ownership of, of minor league teams, just the amount of money people are willing to invest into amateur or collegiate sports that has skyrocketed in the past 25 years. And I'd like to think we played some role in the realization and the creation of tremendous value around sports and sporting activity. Well, my own Denver Broncos are on the market as we speak for $4 billion, which would have been a number that would have seen unfathomable, I imagine, in 1997 at issue one. It's the only word for it is exponential. The values that you're seeing on these teams, and of course, all aspects of the sports industry are affected by the marketplace saying that something like a brand or an event has this tremendous value that has repercussions throughout the economy. And certainly coming off of the pandemic and the past couple of years, we've seen the value of sports underlined even further because that's been the first activity to return to destinations around the country. And, uh, you know, we always talked in terms of the power of sports, our, our basic pitch and our PowerPoint presentation for many years was entitled The Power of Sports. Uh, that's what we're talking about here. And I think that it's done nothing but grow over the past 25 years. And I think it will do nothing but continue to grow in the next 25 years. It's been interesting, obviously, following the evolution of, of the magazine and the types of stories we cover and and the sections that we devote to it. Obviously, that has evolved over time. And I think we've done a great job adjusting uh, to the market, adding things, you know, uh, adjusting, taking things away. I want to kind of give a shout out to uh, the one mainstay I think that's been there from from the very beginning. Our section called the Bid Bowl, which is where we just list, you know, we we provide RFPs that are out there, uh, organizations looking for destinations, and it's amazing to me, Tim, that 
that section, while it lives largely online now, it still is part of our, our, our issues when we print them. It has remained robust and it has remained full almost from the beginning. And I think uh, as much as the amazing valuations and, and economics you can put behind it, I always turn back just to that simple concept of how much business is still out there and how many sports organizations are still looking for those connections with destinations, even new destinations that they haven't been to before. It goes back to what I was saying earlier, which is the elegance of sports travel is perhaps the simplicity of its concept. And that is there are events out there, there are events being created constantly, and they're looking for partners that will allow them to stage the events successfully. And that's what the bid bowl is all about. And you're right, uh, and not only tremendous staying power in that one editorial department, but whole businesses have been evolved around that department of the magazine, the concept of events available for bid. And we've provided that in every issue of the magazine. And as you say, online now, 24-7, 365, that's the type of evergreen information that really indicates the importance of having a communications vehicle like sports travel available to the industry. Are you ever surprised yourself, Tim, when you take a step back just to see where all of this has gone? I'm talking about the industry as much as, as the magazine now, just that, that pace of growth. I mean, you knew you were on to something certainly back then when we dedicated a publication to the industry. And yet, as you touched on earlier, things just continue to grow and, and evolve pretty much at all levels of sport. And we're coming out of this pandemic where the, you know, the sports event industry was certainly among the strongest um, when we talk about events, you know, having just gone through this amazing experience and still going through it. But does it ever surprise you just how far things have come over that time? I mean, 25 years is not all that long considering how advanced this industry has become. Absolutely pleasantly surprised, Jason. Uh, you know, we had a vision for growth, but even in our most optimistic imaginings, I don't think we could have ever expected the number of cities that have gotten into the market, the venues that have been built, particularly uh, multi purpose sports venues that target amateur athletic activity. So it has been an amazing journey and one that I'm very, very happy we decided to embark upon all those years ago. You're listening to the Sports Travel Podcast. This episode is being sponsored by the Myrtle Beach Convention Center, a proven, desirable vacation destination only blocks from the beach. Planners should consider sunny Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and the sizable Myrtle Beach Convention Center for your next events. Having handled an array of events from competition sporting events to food service products trade shows, as well as golf equipment to consumer shows and gaming conventions, the Myrtle Beach Convention Center has developed an impressive resume. The center offers 100,800 square feet of of column-free exhibit space, a 17,000-square-foot ballroom with 17 breakout meeting rooms, all attached to the 402-room Sheridan Myrtle Beach Hotel. When booking your event at the Myrtle Beach Convention Center, guests can also take comfort in knowing that the center is star-accredited by the Global Biorisk Advisory Council. Schedule your exclusive tour today. After all, they host great meetings. For more information, visit MyrtleBeachConventionCenter.com. And now, back to the episode. As you think about you know what destinations should be doing for their sports marketing efforts, Tim, and obviously you've been at the forefront of all this for for a long time. What things come to mind? Uh, you know, having studied this industry, having covered this industry, what things come to mind as far as what cities really should be focusing on as they are 
thinking about their sports marketing efforts and, and the resources that they're putting toward those efforts? I think one of the key elements is for the, the cities to think in terms of what makes them unique, uh, because that's the story that they can most effectively tell. And in a lot of instances, they have stories and, and histories and backgrounds that involve sporting events. So one of the one of the more successful techniques is to build upon the events that have been hosted successfully by reaching out to similar event organizers, by using that as your calling card, by developing signature events for the destination. All of those things can help tell the story that then becomes an effective marketing technique, not only to the event rights holders, but ultimately to the fans, the thousands and, and millions of people who travel to see sporting events at all levels. All of that is an important part of communicating the uniqueness of a destination in a way that causes people not only to want to stage events there, but to visit there. So it's a, it's a powerful combination. It's something I think destinations are doing a better and better job of, uh, you know, every year we see the marketing sophistication growing. And I think a part of that is the evolution of the sophistication in sports marketing and management generally. You know, when we launched Sports Travel Magazine, there were only a handful of universities that offered sports marketing and management programs, either at the undergraduate or graduate levels. And now there are dozens and dozens of them. And so, again, I think this rising tide of sophistication is something that Sports Travel Magazine both reflects, but also augments and helps to grow. And I think that that's a very important part of the mission of Sports Travel Magazine. Yeah. And I think it works on the other end for our audience as well, Tim, the, the sports event organizations. One of the things that became so interesting to me when I first became aware of the magazine was how many different sports organizations there are out there, uh, how many sports there were beyond just the ones that you may necessarily see on, on television or come across. And the other thing that I came to respect early on from, from your work and the work of the magazine was how seriously we've treated all of them, whether they are a niche sport or uh, the Super Bowl, I think we've always had the same philosophy that these are important endeavors and, and organizations that cities and destinations need to be aware of and, and are all potential partners. And that's been an interesting evolution to watch as well. I remember one of the earliest promotional pieces that we developed. Uh, it talked about the fact that you know most of the world is is focused on the big four or big five sports, but we were able to show from the outset that there are more than a hundred different sports that, that organize championships and tournaments that cause people to travel. And within those hundreds of or hundred different sports, you've got hundreds and thousands of sports organizations that oversee those sports at various levels that organize those events uh, locally, regionally, nationally. And so that's what really was an exciting part of the concept for us. It's this idea that, you know, the world's not all about those sports that are most covered, you know, by the media. There are untold opportunities around lesser known sporting activity that the participants in are just as passionate about 
as they would be about baseball, football, basketball, and hockey. So it's been an exciting part of, of what we've done with Sports Travel Magazine to provide exposure for sports that people may not be familiar with. Some of them, some people might not even want to call a sport, but our bottom line was, does it cause people to travel? Will it get people to stay in a hotel room? And when you approach sports with that as the common denominator, that allows you to pitch that big tent that I talked about earlier and to define the market by the biggest terms possible, not by sort of limited terms. Right. Well, we're we're obviously in an anniversary year, which has us being reflective. But do you ever uh, have space in your head, Tim, that even thinks beyond, I mean, to say 25 years from now, what this industry might look like or how much bigger it may be compared well, to where we're all, even sitting today? Uh, let me just say, I'm always more focused on the future 25 <laughs> than the past 25. And so I apologize if, if my memories of the past 25 have not been all that you were looking for. But I can say that absolutely, if you project outward, and, and maybe it doesn't have to be 25 years from now, uh, because I think what you're going to continue to see is the evolution of the experience of attending a sporting event. You'll continue to see the convergence of technology and the live event experience, technologies such as augmented reality being used to enhance the experience at a, a, an in-person event. You'll continue to see all kinds of developments that add excitement to events because event organizers are smart enough to know that they have to continue to appeal to the next generation of event consumers. And as you know, Sports Travel Magazine has covered very closely the evolution of competitive video gaming and esports because there you can very easily foresee a future where 90,000 people in a stadium can be participating in an event. That's something only the bandwidth would not allow currently, but one day will. And I think you can take from that vision the concept of fans having the opportunity to be involved in more and more meaningful ways with the events they're attending. You take a look at a concept such as the fan-controlled football league, where the fans are actually calling the plays, and it's not a large leap to envision a time when fans at events of any kind could be involved in a meaningful way with what happens at the event. And obviously, uh, you might want to dedicate a certain part of the schedule to the events that the fans would have a say-so in. But those are those are the things that are exciting to me. The idea that the fans' participation could be more than that of a passive spectator. And I think we're getting there uh, probably, as I say, in the near-term future. We aren't going to have to wait. Uh, 15 or even 20 years for something like that. Uh, you know, you can't help but see the applicability of things like NFTs uh, to ticketing, which was demonstrated at this year's Super Bowl. But the thing that I think will cause that to have some legs is the fact that that NFT can be tied to a smart contract, which means that the event organizer 
can realize a gain every time a ticket is resold, which has long been the bane of a lot of live event organizers is that they lose control of that secondary market. And with the non-fungible token, it becomes possible for them to not lose that control. And I think a good argument could be made that they shouldn't be losing control of the uh, auxiliary revenue that's realized from ticket sales. So those are some of the exciting areas that I think are going to continue to spur growth, to, to continue to add value to this market in the years ahead. And you know, I look at it and am as excited about the next 25 years uh, as much as I've been excited about the past 25 years. Tim, it doesn't surprise me that you would be always looking ahead 25 years as opposed to uh, interested in looking back uh, 25 years. Somehow, I think uh, at issue one of the magazine, if I had said the term non-fungible token would be something we would be talking about, you probably probably would have been pretty excited uh, back then. But uh, you know, I do appreciate appreciate you taking some time out to uh, to take a, a step back because I I do think it's important to uh, examine the origin of of how some of this began. It has been an absolute pleasure uh, helping you see your vision through for the magazine. I think we've got a bright future ahead of us still at sports travel. It remains a dynamic industry, one that is constantly evolving, and I think that's uh, part of the fun for everybody involved at all ends, whether you are a destination or a rights holder or a supplier, or if you have the privilege uh, like we have had to cover this industry and and see it through. So thank you, Tim, for taking even a few minutes out of your day to chat about where this has been in the past and of course, where it's all going. So uh, congratulations to you on a momentous milestone for Sports Travel Magazine. Thank you, Jason. And I would uh, be remiss if I didn't mention how proud I am of the work that you've done on Sports Travel Magazine over the past 15 years and the work that you'll be doing on it over the next 25. Uh, It's been uh, one of the singular pleasures of my professional career to have had the opportunity to work with you and the team at Sports Travel. And quite frankly, I think that, uh, as you mentioned, Sports Travel as a brand will continue to evolve in ways that we probably can't imagine. 25 years ago, I couldn't have imagined people sitting around listening to podcasts like this one, (laughs) and they seem to have certainly caught on. But it's all about the storytelling. And I think that uh, you'll continue to tell great stories through Sports Travel Magazine. And by doing that, you'll help the industry uh, continue to evolve. I think you'll continue to anticipate those changes that will occur in the sports event industry. And hopefully you'll continue to spur some of those positive changes along. So what do you say, Jason? Should we go ahead and book that follow-up podcast for 2047? <laughs> yes, I will put it in my calendar uh, right here as we speak. And I look forward to that conversation when uh, when we have it, as I know we will. Well, thank you very much, Jason. I appreciate all of the the work you do, all of the work of the team, and of course, the support of North Star Meetings Group in uh, continuing to build the legacy of Sports Travel Magazine. Well, it began with you, and we thank you for that, Tim. And thank you again for taking some time today to chat about it. Always my pleasure. Thanks, Jason. 
This has been another edition of the Sports Travel Podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe to our podcast on all your favorite platforms, including iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Past episodes are also available at sportstravelmagazine.com, which features regularly updated breaking news and in-depth features on stories related to the sports event industry. Be sure to visit us daily at sportstravelmagazine.com, at Sports Travel on Twitter and Instagram, and at Sports Travel Magazine on Facebook and LinkedIn. Until then, this is Jason Gowers for Sports Travel, and thanks for listening.